0: Hi everyone, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hilliard. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness,
1: to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a
0: wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast, and subscribe to his newsletter at DJ Hillier.com. So let's get to it.
1: Hey friends, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to another edition of the My Fit Podcast podcast. And man, it sounds so great to say that. I was uh, taking about a month off. I had some other cups of my life that needed to be filled. I also wanted to stack up some content and some episodes so that I could have some in the bank so I could get out to you guys and not have to rush every single week trying to find a new guest. And as you know, I'm very passionate about putting out really great interviews really good content so i want to make sure that the people i'm interviewing are bringing their a game and also uh providing valuable information for you and i think the next few weeks are going to be nothing short of incredible information and we kick it off with somebody that i've been talking to uh for quite a while try to get on the show this has been a long time coming uh is somebody uh, that i really looked up to in the industry and has taught me a lot about fitness uh, courses, uh, education platforms, just so many little things, uh, through the training think tank community. And if you follow me or the show, you know, that I'm a big fan of training think tank. And today I have the owner and operator, the man, the founder, uh, the man behind the scenes, Mr. Max L. Hodge. For those of you guys that don't know who Max is, Max is a coach, entrepreneur, um, first and foremost, he's the founder of Training Think Tank and his client roster includes top athlete, top CrossFit competitors, business executives, sports athletes, and general fitness enthusiasts. And he's right now currently coaching two perennial CrossFit Games athletes in Travis Mayer and Noah Olson, who have both been on the MyFit podcast. Max's passion for sports, commitment to excellence, and the endless curiosity about all things related to the human experience is the inspiration for him and his training think tank brand. Max is a super deep thinker, he's an incredible coach, successful entrepreneur, and honestly one of the most intelligent people I have ever come across. Some of the topics that we got into today were first, what were the thoughts and intentions behind creating an on-site group? As um, most of you know now, if you're in the, the CrossFit community, you know that there's a lot of training camps that are popping up right now. And that's kind of the new trend is a bunch of really high level athletes getting together and train together rather than everybody train on their own and training think tank kind of followed suit and created their own training camp. And I was curious about what was the idea behind it? And most importantly, what was the intention behind creating an onsite competitive group? After that, we talked about how Max defines, manages, and models expectations with his athletes and staff. If you guys were with me when I uh, interviewed Brett Ledbetter from What Drives Winning, I think he had a huge, I know he had a huge impact on me on how to create winning teams and environments. And, and the theme that has stuck with me is asking coaches and also asking myself, what are the ways that we define, manage, and model expectations? And it it's cool to hear Max's ideas on those three topics. After that, we talked about how Max looks at raising the game of some of the best CrossFitters in the world. Noah Olson, for instance, is one of the most well-known CrossFitters in our sport and has been as close as being second on the podium. I was just super eager to know a guy that is one of the best in the tip of the spear. How do you move him from two to one? What are some things as a coach that you can do to move somebody just that you can't even say 1%, less than 1% to stand on top of the podium? After that, we talked about individualized programming versus group style, some of the benefits, pros and cons of both sides. And then we talked about at the end, uh, some of the games, CrossFit Games reflections of 2021. Max is obviously there. He's a big part of the games and had a uh, hand in some of the athletes that were competing. So I was super curious from his standpoint, sitting in his seat in the Coliseum, what were some of the things that he took away from where the sport is today? If you guys are interested in hearing more from Max, he has a lot of content on Instagram and social media uh, and YouTube. So you guys can follow him on Instagram at Max Elhaj. Also check out his company, Training Think Tank, and you can follow along with any of his latest educational content, including The Classroom, which is a great piece for coaches at www.trainingthinktank.com forward slash The Classroom. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a rating, review, and refer it to a friend. That stuff helps my show grow tremendously, and it really makes my day. Thank you guys for the support. It's so great to be back, and I look forward to getting in touch with all of you soon. Enjoy this episode with Mr. Max Elhaj. Let's go. Max Elhaj, welcome to the MyFit podcast, man. This has been a long time coming. I've had several of your coaches and athletes on the show and the words training think tank probably pop up on my show more than any other words when we talk about companies and looking up to you guys' resources, education, and everything you guys put out there. So it's awesome to kind of bring it all together and bring the owner himself on the show. So uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the show. Yeah, man, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Cool. I think the first question is the most important question, and it's how is your spike ball game since we've last <laughs> seen each other?
0: Oh man, I, it's non-existent. So whatever athleticism I've retained from just living, that's what I'll bring to the table. I have no skills though. <laughs> oh man, do you got?
1: Do you not play anymore? Did you retire?
0: I didn't. I didn't retire. I feel like the total volume of games just went down, so we don't play as much with spike ball. People started doing more CrossFit because half of our coaches qualified for the games. (laughs) That's so funny, man. I remember
1: being there. We were playing constantly. And I also, we have it at the gym and low key spike ball is something that is great carryover for athletic development, warming up. Like I train a lot of young athletes and this is off tangent to what I wanted to get to today, but spike ball in general, I think just give it a little bit of a plug. If you want to get better at some quickness, agility, and hand eye coordination, pick up that game.
0: Yeah, for sure. I also think too, there's an aspect, maybe I'm learning this now more so in my adulthood. I've always tried to have fun, but where something fun can almost make physical exertion seem easy. Mm-hmm. So spike is still kind of hard, like if you're running around and trying to hit it, but because you're playing, you don't really even think about the difficulty of it. Whereas CrossFit, mm-hmm. I feel like Everyone who does it knows it's hard.
1: <laughs> right. That's awesome, man. Cool. Well, uh, I, w- I would do the typical, hey, tell me about yourself. But I think yeah, yeah. everybody listens to the show, knows who you are. If you don't, if you guys don't, you need to stop, hit re- hit pause and go check them out. So let's just dive into some of the topics. I think first thing that I want to get into, Max, is talking a little bit about 2021. And you kind of changed your mode a little bit. You created an on-site competitive training environment. So pre-games, uh, even pre-semifinals, you kind of had this idea and you created a competitive environment. Talk to me a little about how you got there, why that was important. What were some of the nuances of creating that environment?
0: Yeah. Well, we've actually been trying to build it for years. We tried in 2018 to build a competitive culture and field multiple teams and prep. I think Noah and Travis were both training together here that year as well. So we've been through the iteration of trying to figure out how to train people together in person. But in 2021, it felt like it was more important because people were really isolated. So, competitors, you know, people might not talk about it as much on social media or maybe even just talk about it except to their close people. But uh, quarantine was hard, especially for people that like to train and be around other people and compete in training. You just have that removed from you. And when you lose that motivation, it's hard to be at the highest level of something. It's easy to be like, I'm just going to go in and do a little workout because Mm -hmm. I'm sitting at home all day. Mm -hmm. But when it's like, I got to be ready to be the best in the world and you're just by yourself and you're not sure if the event's going to happen or when it's going to happen, that started to get into people's minds. So the onsite environment was an opportunity for us to just like get together and be like, fuck it, let's just do this as well as we possibly can and have fun. And if it doesn't end up happening this year, then we'll be fitter for the next year, like whatever it is. Um, And it ended up being a pretty cool experience that we'd like to replicate.
1: You see now all these training camps are kind of popping up. You know, Rich has kind of been famous for kind of maybe even starting it, maybe not, but you see all these camps kind of popping up. Is this something that... Perhaps you were against early in your career and you've kind of changed your mind on, or what are your thoughts on having that um, training environment? Is there some balance? What are some of your thoughts on that?
0: Well, if you run a training business, you always have a training environment. Mm -hmm. I think the difference, you know, and maybe some of it's just media, is that we put a ton of media about about the competitive aspect of our, our environment. But the training culture is always there. In an off season, it might be more people that are just like doing their own thing, working on their joints, you know, trying to get healthy or planning their competition seasons. Like people right now are planning Mm -hmm. Wadapalooza. But then as you get close to a season, it's like, oh, everyone's here and everyone's getting ready for the same thing. So I think there was hype and buzz that maybe we were doing something different this year. Mm -hmm. I just think it happened to be a big visibility year for us but we were doing the same thing. So instead of it being the, you know, regional athletes and the one or two games athletes we had in the past, now it's okay, we have four individual athletes on site in the same environment. And it was a challenge, not a challenge in a bad way, but you're dealing with multiple personalities and people that have different life schedules and people that have different training experiences like Travis and Noah have been doing this for a decade, and Sam qualified for his first games. And you're like, "Well, how do we prep them both together in the same way?" Uh, I think that our environment is learning how to deal with multiple high level people and the personalities and schedules that come with it. Maybe there are other organizations that are now trying to do that. For us, it's really just that the personalities got bigger Mm. or the outward fan base got bigger. I. I think we'll have an environment all the time. So yeah, I mean, I kind of got lost there on a just on a rant about the environment, but I don't think it was that different. And I think everybody's going to have to move in that direction in some capacity. Just some environments might be set up for one or two people. TTTs is always like, if we're a coaching organization it means that we want to build one with the infrastructure to support as many of those people as we can in one spot and that's a challenge to do if you look at like some of these other bigger athletes in the sport like Velner and Fikowski and Froning their environments are wrapped around them right and that's just a little bit of a different way to build
1: A common debate, if you will, that's been going on for several years is whether people should be training in groups and training together or have this individualized approach. And uh, during the years of TTT, you guys have done a little bit of both, and now you've explored into the design. Talk to me a little bit, Max, about, I don't know, who's the type of person that you see succeeds really well in one of those categories and have you found that there's a balance that works well? I think another thing too, we talk about these training camps. Yes, Danielle Brandon, Carrie Pierce, they're, they're all training together, but maybe they're just training at the same time, but they're all doing different things. And that can be very motivating yeah. too, just the vibes. Talk to me a little bit yeah. about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it—it's a it's a learning process and they're all important. I mean, I think in my earlier days as a human, I was more introverted than I am now. So I was gravitated towards somebody like OPT who was also super introverted and who built a culture of like one oh, even the Opex affiliate network is that it's you know do a workout of your own design in this gym that other people are doing their own thing as well there's value to that it's not a worthless system but there's also a ton of value to the group class model the amount of energy that can be created by just like a super self motivated person is going to train by themselves and get it done. Somebody that really struggles with fitness and needs eyes on for basic things like an air squat and a hollow body hold, they actually might get better results in a class. And I know that's a, that'd probably be an uncommon thing to say yeah, in yeah. like an OPT so- circle, but that is individualization. It's realizing when somebody's social and emotional profile is just better suited for groups. Um, For a high-level athlete, I think there's always a balance of like waving into one or the other. It's just that some people might do all their group training, quote-unquote, at competitions. So if you look at it that way, it's just like training, they're doing all their own stuff, but they have to then practice competing to figure out how they blend into that social environment because it's easy to get distracted and lose sight of what you were doing on your own if that's all you ever do. But if you build competition experience, then you could probably deal with just working out on your own. So I don't know if there's like categorization that would be clear of like these people succeed in this or these people succeed in that. But I think they all have value and good coaches should, or maybe not even good coaches, coaches will probably learn if they stay in the game that they all have value. And then you just learn how to get good at helping people in any one of those mediums.
1: Totally. And I think a lot of it too depends on time of year um, and how long you've been in the game. I know for me, something that's really helpful is to have that balance of like Saturdays we do the throwdown and I yep. literally I put myself in situations where I'm surrounded by people that are better than me. And it and it's a not a shock, kind of a shock to the system of seeing like, oh my gosh, like their speed of movement is so much faster. And you yeah. don't feel that when you're on your own. And so I think to me, it's a balance. So for me, I do two days a week of training with other people, and then the other four days, three days is by myself. And so that works for me. And I think a lot of it would depend on, yeah, if it's beginner, intermediate, advanced, how long have you been in the game? Did you just yeah. get done competing? Are you, are you burnt out? There's a lot of probably factors that go into the decision of who yeah. you surround yourself with.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the... So the goal over time, like as we continue to build our coaching infrastructure, is that we had this principle of always being athlete centric, figuring out how do we take care of the individual unique athlete. But then when you say, okay, well, we're going to do a group program, you are like, well, are we making that athlete centric? How do we then make an a group program more individualized? And so we've been brainstorming like creating on ramp programs for our competitive program to teach people like, you know, you, I don't need to teach you anything because you've been coached and you've been in the game and you're super experienced and you are a coach. So you kind of have evolved to do these things over time. But if I say, okay, we'll take you when you were 21 and you're just like, oh, I want to get into CrossFit. What would be the most effective way if your entry point was a $50 program with TTT? How do we get you to that state as quickly as possible? And that's what we're trying to figure out is like, how do we. Serve athletes better in all these different ways. Is that really challenging, Max? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yes, it it is because I think the challenge to it is figuring out how to monetize it and make it uh, an effective business because, you know, like building a business, like building a facility, hiring coaches, like all these things, they cost a lot of resources. And if you look at some of the other coaching. Cultures that are out there—they're lower touch point, higher visibility. So, like really great marketing infrastructures, and people come in and they make a ton of money, and then they have all that money to be able to do things and build. You know, go to traveling camps and bring in coaches and do all this stuff. Figuring out challenge for me is how do I balance my desire to be an idealistic coach because I got into this because I love it with being an effective business owner at the same time and realizing that getting resources helps me become a more effective coaching organization. So it's been a, I don't know, a humbling process to figure it out. I think it's, you know, it's been a good challenge though.
1: Good. Awesome. Um, I recently read, have you ever heard of the books, What Drives Winning by Brett Ledbetter?
0: No, but it sounds okay. great. I'll yeah, it's really it awesome,
1: man. He has a series of books um, and he does presentation and keynote, keynotes and workshops, well, ba- mostly working with like um, field sport athletes, teams, things like that. And um, long story short, he has worked with, done a lot of case studies and observed a lot of winning environments and coaches and written books about it. And the latest one that he came out with is what drives a winning environment. And I thought there was some really cool takeaways from it. Basically what they tried to uh, cultivator answer was what kind of environment is best for the athletes to be able to perform their best? And the answers were congruent and all came to be, it comes from the leader to be able to do three main things. The first one was define their expectations manage their expectations and then model the expectations. And I thought it was really interesting. And I think it'd be kind of fun to kind of dive into whether you knew these things or you didn't, how did you go about it? So the first one would be defining your expectations for the group. And so he talked about this being a proactive approach and he uses a lot of examples from college football coaches, one being PJ Fleck. And one thing that PJ Fleck does in the beginning of each year is he uses film study to show his athletes what the expectations are. So after a play, I want you guys to run back to the huddle. It looks like this and there's visuals. I'm curious mm. for you when you try to implement some of the you know cultures and the standards, how do you define the expectations for your athletes on site?
0: Well, so I had a, like an, introductory meeting with the whole team right after, maybe it was right after the open before quarterfinals or right after quarterfinals before the open, where I basically brought the group together. I wrote it all out on a whiteboard and I just said, this is what we're going to try to do and what we're going to try to accomplish. Um, as you were saying that, the first thought in my head was, I could do this better. Like If these are the three ways that you create a winning environment, I can I can improve my ability to define expectations in the beginning. But that's what I did this year. Um, in terms of managing those expectations, I think that happens just through the process of constant evaluation, reevaluation, and communication. Like, right. hey, we're trying to be excellent. This is a bad training session. Then you discuss and manage, like, okay, well, you know, if this is what you're trying to accomplish, this is what you need to do. And it's almost like course correction. Um, modeling the expectations. I mean, that's a that's an interesting one because the expectations of what a championship athlete do and what the cha- and the expectations of what a championship coach do are different. They require mm. different commitments in terms of time management, physical output. Um, I think I try to do that by just like showing up to the sessions on time, doing whatever that I can do. Um, but again, as I go through all this, I'm like, well, I could be better at all of these things, and maybe part of doing that will help us uh, push athletes to a higher threshold and make it more likely to winner at win at bigger and bigger uh, stages.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, the really first one, deal. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. that that no, it's okay. The, the define the define was more proactive. So it was like preseason, like you're talking about, like yeah. sitting down and laying out the the expectations maybe if it's not from an athlete standpoint you're you're also a leader of a team max how do you define expectations for your your coaches
0: yeah well so we've tried a bunch of different things and we're constantly in new iterations but same type of thing that we do it through like group set group meetings get in together here's what we're working on here's what you know i'm going to do over the course of these periods of a couple weeks here's what i'm going to try to do for the athletes here's where i need help um I've been getting better and better at that delegation process. It's a, you know, it is a challenge. And I think when in the initial stages, I think I had the highest level of competence as a coach. And maybe that's still true, but like writing programs and just like being in the nuts and bolts of getting somebody prepared for the highest level. And over time, as I started teaching that to other people, I think that as an art, it's not necessarily between the TTT coaches that one's better and one's not better. It's different styles. So the manipulation of, of different styles is actually good for a CrossFit Games athlete, so they don't get used to any specific stress. Sure. And we all have biases in how we write things. So I've been more comfortable in the beginning leaning on them for those types of jobs. And then it started becoming you know, more elaborate, like, hey, you know, I need you to write this, or I need you to help me to review this, or we're going to try doing hybrid coaching. But I think we're constantly defining, managing, and modeling our expectations at every little checkpoint. Like you know, now we block the year off. We have we basically block the year off in annual training cycles, modeled based on where the open is next year. And we chunked the year up, and we basically did this whole process for the whole of 2020. Well, from the end of 2021 season to the end of 2022 season. Um, but that process will probably happen at every checkpoint. So even at the end of our next cycle, we'll probably have to go in and redo that again.
1: Sure. And if we're talking about the managing the expectations, he, Brett talked about how that's more reactive and it kind of in the moment. And for a coach coaching a college team, it's like catching the below that the below the line behavior and turning it to above the line behavior. Um, I guess. What my question would be is, you don't have to name anybody, but do you have an example of that time when, I don't know if it's, if below the line behavior is the right terminology there, but have something where it's like, you know what, that's not how we do things around here. And you had to correct mm. that. Do you have an example of that with an athlete or a coach?
0: Um, I do have some examples that come off the top of my head um, for coaches. I think the course correction for that was just like, Parting ways as a as an employee um, and not working for us anymore, I think that would probably be the only course correction I could think of with regards to coaches, other than just maybe like meetings sitting down and being like, "Hey, I think we could do this better," or I got this email from this person, and that's not what we need to do but that's actually something that I've talked about with my staff members uh, that I want to define clear expectations about what it means to be a training think tank Mm -hmm. coach. And I don't think I have that right now. I think I try to model that behavior by doing the things that I think are required for continual learning, for communication, for uh, showing up to sessions, for making sure that people have their stuff on time. I I think all of those little details and nuances are the things that I hold myself to. So if you're going to call yourself a coach for my organization, I want that there too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I've ever done that super, super clearly, but I think my coaches just picked up on it and did it. Cause a lot of them were also athletes that I worked with in the past. Um, with regards to athletes, I don't know. I think I'm maybe a little bit too soft. I've been thinking about that, uh, over the course of the last, um, I don't know, maybe it happened after the games or maybe before that, but thinking about how do I harness because sometimes you have like a a difficult honest truth that you can convey to someone when they're just not being they're not being their best self and you right. can see it but mm-hmm. they're in their own pity party bullshit and they or they're just in a, in a struggling situation and i think because my athletic career was very Uh, unpleasant because people were screamed or said like shame-inducing things as a way to encourage me, which in my personality, it did the opposite. It made me revolt and not want to work. I've always been super conservative with trying not to use abusive language with people that I work with. I think maybe I pendulum corrected too far on the side of soft end of that spectrum. And I need to learn as I get older, how do I be assertive and aggressive with people when they're just not being good enough? Something I'm going to have to work on, I think.
1: And I think a lot of it too is depending on the athlete, right? Like some people, as we both know, if you respond, you know, you're, you're, that was a shitty workout. They might cry or leave or, or, or freaking fire you. You never know. So I think it's, it really comes back to making sure you know who you're talking to before you start inserting that
0: yeah, and I think having good communication tools, because the objective is not to make them feel shame. It's to make them understand that what they did wasn't acceptable. and in if faced with that same situation in the future, they need to behave and react differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard, man. It's also hard not to get emotionally invested. and like sometimes, you know, I, I know that my athlete's success doesn't dictate my success, but from a public market perspective, that does influence things a little bit right like people will you know look to a championship coach because they have a championship athlete so you know okay well if i want that title and i want to be known as somebody who's great at helping people get to the next level then they they have to be able to do it for me so i'm very dependent upon that and in the process i get very emotionally entwined into it and sure. i'm like all right well i i also realize I don't want to push them too hard where they get burnt out. I need to maintain my professional boundaries. So it's an it's a interesting process of trying to learn how to be good for other people.
1: Mm-hmm. An ongoing process, I could imagine. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so the, sure. the, the modeling uh, happens all the time in the book they talked about. This is an everyday thing. And one of the very simple yet profound sentences that came out of the book, and I'm going to kind of play it with you here and see what you say, a little role play here. But basically it said, if I want my athletes to be blank. I need to be blank and both mm. the blanks need to be the same word. So they, they interviewed uh, Mike Krzyzewski, the coach for Duke university. And he said, if I want, if, um, if I want my athletes to be calm and chaos, I need to be calm in chaos. Mm. If I were to ask that to you. What would you say? If I want my athletes to be blank, I need to be blank. What would you say?
0: So is this people that are trying to become CrossFit games champions
1: Interesting, or say, just
0: people that I'm coaching? Let's say people that you're coaching. Mm. Consistent I think that whatever the pursuit is in in physical realm or or mental realm, like if somebody wants to build a successful business or build a successful body that can snatch really well, whatever it is, the only path to that and path to level of excellence is consistency in the process of work and you know, for a CrossFit Games athlete, it's consistency in the process of trying to get better at all of the skills that are involved in the sport of CrossFit and then putting them together in a very chaotic situation of high pressure with crazy timetables at one weekend of the year. Um, That's. But I think as a coach, if you're displaying a level of consistency with the approach and trying to get better, then they're modeling the consistency through their behavioral action of doing, you know, whatever you're planning and putting into place. I'd say that probably be the first word that pops into my head is consistency.
1: What would it? What would, would it change if I asked you if I want my staff to be blank? I need to be blank.
0: Well, if the word is consistent, I feel like then I didn't model that behavior because I think <laughs> I've course corrected, or maybe I'm consistent in my course correction in trying to get to my outcome. But sure. that I think some from the outside world sometimes looks like inconsistency because you're right. going right. like this, trying to move so, forward. So what I'm
1: saying is like, so you said consistent for the for your athletes. Would yeah. you use the same word for, for staff or would it be a different word?
0: Yeah, I'm not I'm just I'm not sure. I I think that those behaviors would make a good coach or a good athlete because sure. I think you have to consistently try to be a good coach if you want to be a good coach and you have to consistently try to be a good athlete if you want to be an athlete. So it's a powerful word. I'm not sure if it'd be the one if you put me put a gun to my head. I'd have to think more.
1: I put you on the spot, man. I've been reading the book and and marinating on it for a while and I just threw it at you. But um, it's good. I love it. It is cool. And it's something to always be thinking about define, manage, and model. Um, if we want to kind of turn the page here a little bit. So you, Max, have been um, fortunate enough to work with two of the the one of the best athletes in the entire world. I'm I'm very curious as a coach. You have two people that you give them thrusters and pull-ups, they're gonna fucking smash it. Anything that you give them, they're gonna smash. They're world class as a coach they're at the tip of the spear. How do you get them from top 20 to top 10, top 10 to top five? We're talking very minute things. What goes into that? Is it programming? Is it stuff outside of the gym? Where does your mind go when you're talking about, you can't even say 1% better. It's it's way less than 1% better. Where yeah. does your mind go? Where does your mind go?
0: I mean, it goes to all of those variables. I think what I've learned over time is that my knowledge base is probably the broadest in uh, physical training. Like, improving somebody's ability to maintain longevity in their joints, uh, maintain their statistical numbers at the level they need to be able to excel, navigating those things. If shit hits the fan, like you're on a squat progression and somebody you know, gets a sore knee and can't hit their progressions, then you almost have to start thinking of programming, not necessarily just as like, well, fuck, we got to start back squatting. You, you have to start thinking, okay, well, if they're going to go to the games and they're going to test all these sorts of fitness tests, and I'm not going to be able to squat for the next four weeks. This likely isn't going to be the highest variable. So on a broad level, how do I bring all these other skills up, and what does that mean about the characteristics of their physical training? Maybe they need more endurance or more gymnastics. So I think I think in that realm the most, and I constantly go back and revert to that when I'm thinking about big picture. Um, with them, I think it's you know mental stuff because at the highest level, the Body's not really the separator, it's the mindset, and it's the ability not to get distracted and it's the ability to execute on those tiny, tiny details. And in spite of working on that for years with both of them, being Noah and Travis, sometimes those things still happen in the highest pressure moments. So it's like, well, how do we get these things better? How do we break these patterns of behavior? So we've hired you know psychological experts, mental performance experts. I've leaned on other people in other fields that have had success, but you know, the interesting thing about people that are like, you know, let's say Travis and Noah are in the point zero 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 one percent of the world in terms of how good they are. Mm-hmm. But Matt Fraser was a whole stratosphere above yeah. them in terms of his ability to do that people that have that level of talent, you know, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, they're not easy people to access, to even ask them questions about how sure. to figure out how to model their behavior and how why they think the way they think and even if you read their books and all that stuff, it's just it's not enough. So I think a lot of it is just trial and error. Is I'm just not satisfied. Like a, I'll just Every year, if we didn't make it happen, we go back to the drawing board and we're like, well, let's fucking do it better or go find somebody else that you think that can do it better than me (laughs) because this isn't what we worked for. Um, So I think that is like the consistent application of trying to figure out the better solution um, and figure out what those variables are.
1: Right. Just vulnerably speaking, do you ever feel, I don't know, like you have... I could ima- I could imagine uh, Tim Grover, Michael Jordan's trainer. At some point, he had to realize this is the best athlete in the world. I'm training him. I don't want to break this guy, injure him, or lose out on something that you know his pride, passion, everything that he's known for is out on the field. I don't want to fuck that up and take away from anything that we're doing. Is there any sort of... Do you ever feel that when you're training or programming for your athletes? You're like, man, I hope this doesn't break them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot more when I was younger. A sure. lot more. I was very cautious. And I've, I've actually talked to Travis about this, if we're being completely candid, that I think I potentially underprepared him for some of the previous games in 2013 and 2014, because I wasn't willing to do stuff that yeah. I looked at and thought was mm-hmm. stupid. Yeah. Um, that over time has... My, my self-confidence as a coach has just risen over time. In spite of not having somebody who won the games, I'm quite mm-hmm. confident in my ability to analyze the sport, look at the way somebody moves, Uh, give them things that I think are actionable to work on, give them a plan to try to attack it. Do I think it's perfect? No. Do I think I'm automatically the best of the best? I don't even know how you'd measure that. But I've definitely put those things to bed and just like tell them, I can do my best and I could do my best with what I got. And then you have to do that same thing on your side. And we have to be a team and continue to develop communication. And I need feedback in the same manner. Um, So it's become very... Team oriented with them because they're they've earned a seat at the table in planning. They are their own coaches. And I am just like a coach guidance or public, you know, a a coach to the public, like for Mm -hmm. them to say I have a coach. But that relationship is so different than a younger athlete when they first come in. So I don't really fear that anymore. I don't think that a coach's influence is going to be the thing that causes sure. A complete failure on the floor or a complete injury, unless that person is like um, underqualified to do what they do, which happens exactly. sometimes in CrossFit. If somebody's just as super fucking talented, gets into the game, they get a little bit of guidance early on, and then they're world class. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting world class guidance, even though they're getting a world class outcome. And I think that happens in CrossFit, and maybe it happens in other sports too. Um, so I, I don't think I feel that that much anymore.
1: Yeah, I think I remember you saying it was probably years ago now on one of those Ask Max YouTube videos where it was just like, if something goes bad as a coach, take ownership. And if something goes really well, shut the hell up because you, you, you don't have any sort of, you know, yes, you programmed, you wrote it, but you didn't do the hard work. And I think it's just a good kind of note to coaches of just a little bit of humble pie. Like, yes, when they're on the top of the podium, like they did the work. When something bad happens, take ownership. What can we do about it? I think that's just yeah. a good kind of reminder that you were getting to.
0: Yeah, I think uh, humility is uh, just a skill I try to continue to cultivate in coaching. I think pride, pride as an athlete, I feel like, you know, especially even if it gets kind of out of hand, can sometimes give people the confidence they need to do things that are at a like exceptional level. Mm -hmm. I don't think that pride is a characteristic of people that excel in leadership um, or maybe. Just controlled pride. Maybe pride is more balanced with humility because if it gets out of control, people don't want to listen to you.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about the games a little bit. So first uh, I have a couple of reflections, but I'm curious to hear yours right away. Do you have any, I know you've had some time to talk about it. You did a podcast on it. What are some kind of just general things from an outsiders, not outsiders, but like bird's eye view, what were some things you took away from the games as a whole?
0: It was a new vibe. Uh, So I definitely noticed big picture that COVID was still a thing in the world. Um, and that there was still polarized views about it in general, um, which that's probably going to happen at any event or anything that happens in public. But I was happy that it just happened in that environment. Sure. I feel like they kind of took a stance that they thought it was important, so I, I was pumped about that. The I noticed there's definitely a bigger focus on money as a culture in the CrossFit thing, which. It's understandable. I mean, it got purchased by somebody. Whoever purchased it has investment goals that they have because they're governed by business. So you knew that that was going to come, but it was super obvious, especially this year because Monster was one of the sponsors. So it created this like almost cultural clash within our own culture. Like, oh my God, they're owned by Coke, this or that. Oh, it's a... um, So it was interesting. It was interesting to see because this is what a professional sport is. A professional sport has sponsors and media packages and all sorts of stuff. I'm not necessarily sure that I am jazzed about that direction because for me, it was a passion project. But I also know as a business owner, if they are operating as a professional business, it's better for everybody. So it was an observation that I had, and it'll be interesting to see how that um, process of turning this into a professional sport changes the nature of the sport. Because Mm -hmm. then if you're now saying, okay, well, then we have to create the workouts so they're cool for fans. And then that changes, like, is it a test of fitness or is it a sport that's a spectacle, so it'll bring in some philosophical questions that I'm curious to see um, that would be number two, and number three would i think it was a little bit more disorganized than I've seen it in the past like mm-hmm. the the two major ones that I would say would be the yoke workout. I don't know if it was a psychological tactic where they like maybe wanted people to think they could finish in the fourth round, so that way they Uh, didn't go hard enough in the first round, but for people to finish in all, I mean, Tia got a foot away from finishing in that three, two, two, two interval, and then almost everybody finished in the second interval. It seems weird that you would have all that time built into the heats for a three, a three minute or a two minute interval, a two minute interval, a two minute interval, and a three minute interval if 90% of the field was done after the second interval. That seems like a potential, like it wasn't tested enough type. Workout in my, you know, from my outside perspective as a peanut Mm. gallery. And then the squat clean, the clean workout, they set the time cap in the first workout and it was so aggressive that I think only two or three people finished, which has happened before the CrossFit games. But then they had a workout following it that was only a one minute addition in total time and the weights were way, way, way higher. So after that happened, I was like, well, what's there? intention here? Are they trying to only get two cleans or three cleans? And I think that that one is a more clear miscalculation. I, I don't know. And then it affected their media broadcast. And I don't think I've been at a CrossFit Games where the, they weren't like so militaristically correct with their time of the event happening at the right time. It's mm-hmm. been like one of the markers of the CrossFit Games. So those were three things that I just kind of noticed big picture thematically.
1: Yeah, that's good stuff. I had a couple of things that I wanted to kind of uh, run your brain on and just see um, what your thoughts were. One of the things that popped out to me was just the the overall volume and resilience that it takes to compete at that level. And I, it wasn't really a realization that that's what it takes. What what I thought was interesting was after I saw Madero win, and I thought it's interesting, Max, that it, and almost ironic that the man or woman who does the best on Sunday typically wins the weekend. And it's yeah. it to me it talks about. You know, we're, we all start with the full bucket or most of us starts with this full bucket. And as the weekend goes on, we kind of lose water throughout the weekend. Yeah. The person who can have the most water at the end can usually win. Tell me a little bit about, yeah. you know, does that surprise you or what, what are your thoughts on whoever, you know, Rich was most famous for, right? I don't think he ever yeah. lost a Sunday or whatever it was, but what what does that mean for you as a coach? How does How do you view programming when you know that if you win on Sunday, you're in a damn good spot to be on the podium?
0: Yeah, well, you have to make people very volume tolerant. But the thing that I think, I mean, maybe sometimes gets lost in the programming discussion is that for people to excel on Sunday, generally, they also have to be in a good headspace to excel. And those okay. will generally be the people that are also doing well. So sometimes it's almost easy phys- easier sure. physiologically to do well on Sunday if you're already doing well. Mm-hmm. So some of the endurance loss, I think, of the people that are finishing... Farther down the pack than they want is also dealing with the emotional disappointment of being there. It's not necessarily even a physical thing. So I do think there's an aspect of luck to that, and then I Always. do think there's an aspect of their will to be excellent. Like Noah had a great Sunday after you know his expectations were to win the CrossFit Games, mm-hmm. and so to be in whatever it was 10th, 14th place leading into Sunday. Was hard. And I think sometimes that would require that would cause people to like not have a good day. But for him, he was so upset that he went out there and did super well. So the headspace and trying to figure out how to get people back to that headspace if things aren't going well, I think is all you can really do to prepare it. Because if things are going well, it's generally like, you know, it's just generally easier to stay focused on the task because you're getting the instantaneous reward that your behavior is correct and you were doing things right and you have validation and um so i think the preparation for that for training it is all just in you know in psychology
1: hmm That's a great point. Fantastic point. Cause I think too, you know, the people that did well, they probably woke up on Sunday morning in third, second, or first place. And they knew what was, what was in front of them, where it yeah. wasn't like they woke up on the cut line. And then, you know, that's very different waking up and thinking about what could be today. I think that's super important. When you, when you yeah. talk about the, the volume, the training volume that goes into that though, you, you, can, how do you work backwards looking at, okay, this is what, I mean, do you look at like when Warren Chaka puts out, hey, this is the total amount of wall walks, all the stuff that we did. Do you use that to kind of come back or how do you determine, okay, Noah is volume tolerant, Travis is volume tolerant, we're ready to go. How, how do you work backwards that way? And how should, maybe even if you're not going to the games, how should everyday athletes, semifinals, quarterfinals, how should we all look at that?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, basically all you can do in the sport is just look at the data and try to back engineer it. You also have to take into consideration though that the creator of the sport also tries to make sure that it's progressing and that people are caught off guard. Mm -hmm. So you can only use it as some sort of a soft model of like, okay, well, this is what they did last year. What Brandon has done with Becky is they went through and they combed all the data of past CrossFit Games and kind of modeled it out per workout, per games, uh, styles of workouts, movement pairings. And we use that as a guide. It's not like we have some sort of statistical model that we put in and we're like, oh, they're good now and they're volume tolerant, but we right. know the, you know, okay, well, these are the movements we got to touch every week. And then the workouts that we construct have to have approximately these amount of reps. So that way, if they do things, uh, they are able to do that. And sometimes it's super simple. like The workout in quarterfinals came out with 180 GHD sit-ups. I generally didn't train them in that volume. Now- right both of them are such good athletes that they just figured it out. I mean, they didn't do as well as they wanted to relative to the top scores, but there weren't that many people in those like 12, 13, 14 minute ranges. So being 15 and 16 was still good enough for a great score, but it was still super far away from where the people that were excellent at it was. So that was simply like hey, I want to train to be able to do 200 GHDs at speed in a workout. I'm like, all right. So like right after quarterfinals, we just built a very linear progression every Saturday. We hammered that type of volume to get people ready. So it's taking feedback from the sport, taking feedback from the athlete. I think as I've gotten more evolved or like experienced, I guess, I've asked for athletes to tell me what they want because ultimately they have to set the boundaries for what they can handle in training. Because if you push them too hard for too long, they show up and they're shitty. And if you don't push them enough, then they feel like they got to competition and they should have trained harder. So a lot of finding that sweet spot is asking them, where do you think the sweet spot is? And then when they tell me, that's how I kind of construct it.
1: Very cool. Second piece that I took away and I actually still is from uh, Mike McElroy. He did a an Instagram chat on it, and it, his takeaway was the importance of scapular strength and resilience. And his two data points that he pulled out was eleven out of fifteen of the events had a shoulder-related movement, however he categorized that, and then sixteen movements in the games were fairly shoulder-intensive. Again, this is on his scale, but yeah. I don't know how many movements there were, but if sixteen of them involved the shoulder, uh, obviously very important. So, so, to me, it's clear that the shoulder. Position, economy, mechanics—that's all super vital to success in the sport of crossfit. Maybe maybe even the most important part, other than longest capacity, things like that. What are your thoughts on the demands of the shoulder? How do you assess it, and how do you think about training it? Think knowing that you know. Obviously, this is what he thought of, but knowing that that's one of the major takeaways.
0: Yeah. Well, my first instinct is first to challenge the thought. Is that a huge? Portion of the sport in a way that's different than like the hip. How many contractions does a hip need to take for running, for squatting, for pushing the sled? Like, are there more than 16? That's where my head initially goes, is to challenge the idea. But I know that the shoulder is important. I think it it is very time-dependent. So as you get closer to competition, we will be more focused on the sport-specific movements and handling the volume that's required for them and doing scapular accessory work as a tool for making sure that the shoulders don't start to go into bad positions as a result of doing too much of the same patterns. In the off-season, oftentimes it's about either restoring patterns that were broken down from the previous season with just basic gymnastics drills. And I break it down into like, in in a bunch of different ways. So for an athlete with gymnastics, shoulder extension, shoulder flexion, shoulder rotation, loading all of those patterns, maintaining mobility, as you start to train more and more and do more and more and get bigger and like things change. It's not like a static, well, Travis always has to work on X. It's like, well, you know, now Travis has to work on X more because his body's changing. For example, Uh, So for the shoulder in season, I'd say it's movements that require the shoulder, snatching, jerking, uh, doing those with dumbbells as well, muscle-ups, handstand walks, pegboards. It's giving exposure to the sport-specific skills. In the off-season, I'd say it's either the more anatomical model with like Kyle Habdo's writing a PT session for Travis, for example, because he did an assessment and found X in it, then that specific layer of the program will be written from an anatomical supports perspective. And if it's written from a sport perspective, it's kind of the fundamental requirements of what those sure. other things need. So like straight arm strength on the rings or supinated pulling and just getting the shoulder functional to not just be doing the same shit 24, 365.
1: Totally. And I think if we look, I think maybe, maybe a lot of that came out too, because we saw wall walks twice. And I think people yeah. assume, you know, they see the shoulder, they see what that takes and it's a little bit different than handstand walking. So maybe that's yeah. what's like, making people start to have this conversation more. But like, like you said, I think about, I think about the shoulder being tested in so many different ways. Like you said, the straight arm, the bent arm, we have inverted, we have walking inverted, we have going over stairs up and then all the pulling that goes into CrossFit. I think people really underestimate the amount of pulling that's required. I mean, the last workout had what, 90, 90 pull-ups in it. Yeah. yeah, So when, when you start to think about training that I think, and go ahead and piggyback on this or disagree that it's could be more about making sure you're just getting all of those different angles and making sure you're not missing the inverted one or missing one of the patterns.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think last year we got exposed with straight arm. Well, it's not even straight arm strength because straight arm inverted strength handstand walking, I'd say would be pretty good. But for Travis specifically- Wall walks and that straight arm inverted is that would be a push away from you when you're doing a wall walk versus kind of a pull down if you're handstand mm, walking. Yeah, yeah. That was a excuse me a very weak pattern form and I think that pattern was under trained in our program as a result of it being under tested in previous years. So it wasn't part of my testing body to analyze, so it wouldn't be part of my training body to get ready for a competition. But that's what I was talking about before is that you're often going to get exposed that way you know like for example let's say a year of the crossfit games had you know a stand up paddleboard a prone paddleboard and a kayak all as three different 100 point events the shoulder girdles and core control and balance and stability that's required to get really good at those things would be under-trained in every athlete that went to the CrossFit Games because it's an unknown and unknowable set of tests that's so far from what everyone's preparing for that they're just going to suck at that. So that would mean that they would have some sort of dysfunctional or weak area of the body as a result of not putting that stress on it. So I think the learning from that is just basically that we need to target the wall walk as a movement in the sport specific thing. And for him in the off season, that just means doing more wall walks. It's not like an anatomical, you need to do front delt raises. It's like if your body can take that volume and do it at speed and you feel good doing it, and it's not fucking your wrists up or fucking your shoulders up, then think of it like you're building volume of a skill, like you're going for a run and building a base. So that way, when we get into sport training, you can handle more of it.
1: How about the people, Max, who I know this is not your primary uh, people that you, athletes that you work with, but what about the people that are just simply missing active range of motion and they want to get better at the sport? You're talking about intermediate athlete where we know that the skills needed. And if you want to progress in the sport and, you know, we're talking about scapular strength and stability here, it might just be opening up some positions before we can even start to even have the conversation. So we dial it back a little bit. Talk to me about the intermediate athlete that just needs to gain mobility, stability in those positions.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the thing I've learned over time, I've worked with a a number of those athletes and the organization has worked with a number of them. And the thing I always circle back to is they need to be patient and consistent because developing new ranges of motion is a strength conditioning and flexibility and neural control endeavor that takes a while. If you're also living a lifestyle where you're like this and counteracting your shoulder position, all day by typing on a computer or looking at a phone. So the athletes that are successful with very consistent basic strength training and scapular control at the intermediate level, I think are the athletes that end up becoming successful at the RX or plus level, or they just happen to never have those restrictions because they were athletic and left, lived a good lifestyle that never built those dysfunctions.
1: Last thing I want to talk about. I'm very excited. We got 10 minutes left here, and I, I want to pick your brain on this. And I'm going to throw it back a little bit. So your older videos, you talked, you had an intro, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read it, and you'll probably remember it right away. And I want to, t- and I think it relates to the games and talking about. You know, there was only one Wonder at Max strength event, and yeah. some would argue that it really wasn't a true Wonder at Max strength event just because they weren't fresh and it was so. Uh, late in the weekend, if you will. Yeah. And so it just kind of puts more of the importance on capacity. So the quote—I'll read the quote for the people that haven't heard—and it. And then I, I want to I kind of hear your thoughts now that that was four or five years ago. I said, know the quote. All right, I'm going to read it for the listeners. It, <laughs> it, it, it gives me kind of goosebumps, too, because the way you say it, you just deliver it. So I'm going to do my best, but it's uh, but quote, but it's an endurance sport unless the layout changes. But if the if the open stays the same as the way it is right now, you need an engine, you need muscle endurance, and you need proficiency in gymnastics to get out of stage one. So if you don't develop that, you're just wasting your time. So you still need to get stronger. You're like way off on your strength metrics. It still needs to be a prioritization, but it shouldn't be your obsession. Do you still stand by that quote? And how does that parlay into 2021, 2022?
0: Yeah. I mean, I do. I stand by it for sure. However, I think I'd communicate it differently differently. I don't remember exactly who I was talking to. I think that was actually a direct audio from a camp that Chris had me mic'd up on, I think. But if I were speaking to a either intermediate group or a younger group, I would encourage them instead of thinking of it solely as an endurance sport, I would think of it as they need to develop the strength and skills of the basic things in the open before they start worrying about whatever they think is sexy. Because generally the intermediate athlete is like, they're not really that concerned about being an athlete. They're more concerned about like hitting a big snatch and putting it on Instagram or being able to handstand walk or doing like uh, the higher complexity things. Whereas the level of focus on like, well, what does it take to be really good at a burpee and doing burpees fast and doing burpees so they're enduring and being able to get down and up quicker I don't think that same level of focus mentally is put on for them, which it should be because like burpees, double unders, burpee box jumps, toes to bar, like those skills come out every year and they come out in crazy numbers of reps. So it is an endurance sport, but I think an endurance or an intermediate athlete might not necessarily understand what is required to be good at an endurance sport, the level of skill and refinement. Like you think of runners as like, oh well, they just run and they're super tough, but the amount of technical precision of their foot strike, their cadence, their breathing timed with their cadence, their heart rates they can manage, it is a skill that they develop. So I like to now think of CrossFit at that level as more get good at all of the skills and build your strength so you can do the skills well. Because mm-hmm. if you can't, you're probably too weak or too inflexible, or your core's not enduring enough to stabilize you in that position. So. Uh, The the general theme of it is good, but I think I'd try to communicate it differently now.
1: And I think a lot of it too depends on who you're talking to. And the two people that I see are, are you strong enough to compete or are you not strong enough to compete? And that could be like, Are you strong enough to do a pull-up? Are you strong enough to at least do a, like, that's kind of the way I see it. And once you are strong enough, then let's not focus everything on your strength. But if you're not strong enough to even play the game, Max, we got it. We do got to prioritize your strength.
0: For sure. Yeah. Like if you can't snatch 95 pounds, you're not strong enough. But Mm -hmm. I don't think when I was speaking to that, whoever that group was, that that was my audience base. I wasn't talking to like beginner, beginner, beginners, but yeah, for sure they would require a just an investment in controlling their body which generally is strength i mean i guess just being able to lunge squat overhead squat do a pull up do a push up do a strict handstand push up those are just basic strength qualities
1: mm-hmm. on top of that too we've also noticed that the the days of Testing your one at max fresh are very few and far in between. Yeah, we saw it at the Mac and that was pretty awesome to see. But I see a theme kind of happening probably since maybe 2015, 2016 of like those days are kind of done. Knowing that, if you do you agree that that's the theme? One, and then two, knowing that as a coach, how do you start to program, talk to athletes about your one at max fresh number, your one at max fatigue number? Where did your mind go?
0: Yeah, um, I agree that that is the direction of the sport. And it's really hard to manage. It's hard to... So even like you look at the Granite Games snatches and you look at the uh, max snatches, those were both the first events of the first semifinal. Training volume leading into a semifinal is usually less and you're carrying less of it because you've been doing the open and you've been doing the quarterfinals. So it's not like you're doing multiple mile ruck runs and all this stuff that kind of exhausts you. So you have their physiological bodies are in a better state at the time of competition and they're fresh. And you saw the strength expression was super high. I mean, how many 300-pound snatches and all of that, Mm -hmm. and then tested in the same capacity at the games or tested in the same movement. But after doing all the shoulders, the numbers at a statistical level weren't even close. I think had they even done it fresh, as long as it wasn't the... Or fresh, meaning just a true 1RM as long as it wasn't the first event of the competition, you still would have seen some sort of a decrease in the performance numbers just based on time of the year, because it's really difficult to maintain peak 1RM strength at that level of volume. The people that do it, I mean, it's, it is one of the battles. It's like, oh, your strength is dropping a little bit. We might need to cater your volume back. It's, like a, it's a dancing act. So I think it is a theme. I think it's going to be harder and harder for elite athletes to figure out the communication around it is as we go into a competitive season, I basically tell them, here's our target for what you can hit. And then here's what I'd like to hit you know, multiple times leading in. But for example, Noah hurt his shoulder prior to semifinals and we mm-hmm. set snatch targets for what we wanted to hit leading into the CrossFit Games. And we didn't hit any of them because we couldn't train it. Then it comes out and he takes whatever it was, last place or second to last place on that event. Um, And it's just an indication of like, well, that's where your training was. So I think you have to figure out what number do you need to hit in training and how do you convert that to game day? And then that can kind of build your model moving forward of how you communicate what the number needs to be. Mm
1: -hmm. And specifically, again, if you're talking about the person who's strong enough, not strong enough, if you are strong enough for the sport, now maybe we need to look at, depending on who you are. Can you lift under fatigue? If you're not strong sure. enough yet, let's not let's not go down that road yet. We yeah, still need yeah, to build yeah. the, requis- the requisite strength. I know it seems simple, but I think there's a lot of people that might get that twisted.
0: Yeah, for sure. You got to build the requisite strength, and then if you're going to start working on capacity, it's hitting those numbers under fatigue, and then also hitting big percentages of those numbers for relatively high reps. Like, can you do uh, twenty reps at above seventy percent of your one rep max? Like, that's a a super and maybe even paired with gymnastics, like five rounds for time of ascending weight snatches above 70% paired with 20 chest bars in between each round. That's like a whole nother skill that you got to develop. So it literally is a constant learning process. And I think that your learning process is just dictated by where you are and what your background is. Like if you jump Absolutely. into it and you're, you know, at this level in the sport, then you got to do the things that make somebody at this level start to get better. It's like white. Belt training, and yeah. then as you start to get better, it's like, oh, well, now you're a purple belt or a brown belt. And you're, you know, these are the things you work on. And then when you get to that black belt level, it's like, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's personal, it's like, it's luck, it's timing, it's environment, it's the people that you're carrying with you. It's all of it, and it's yeah. uh, a hard thing to try to excel in all the time because it's like it's difficult to model what takes, what does it actually take to be the best in the world yeah
1: that's a great i love it man that's where and i like that analogy a lot and i think it's just another reminder to people that it's a climb but it's probably and mostly a slow climb this stuff takes years to build it's not an eight week strength cycle
0: Yeah, Yeah,
1: for sure. (laughs) cool man max this was fun uh you have a lot of stuff going on i want to give you a chance to tell the listeners on what they can how they can participate be a part of the training think tank uh the floor is yours all
0: right cool um i'm launching a mentorship program that should be out i think it's going to be out in the end of this week i've done one iteration we've upgraded it i got a bunch of information if you just head to my instagram maxelhag you can learn about what we're doing i'm going to put up a free video that people can watch that gives like how it works how much it costs what we're going to cover uh and all those details from a training perspective design design is going to be in the future in the near future uh Ttt compete it might be both of those things at the same time but I think just making it clear that we're like this is a competitive program if you want to compete from the intermediate level up to elite or masters we're gonna work on our uh, a new launch of our fitness program which was currently Design 60 and we're gonna put some cool things in there like a, a strength program an endurance cool. program a breathing program a bodybuilding program and just well, kind of awesome. expand the offerings for those of People that might not be into doing competitive CrossFit but still like training, and uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it, man. That's uh, don't forget the classroom, man. Yeah, yeah, the classroom, the classroom courses. I we we're trying to focus our education on uh, basically courses as being deep dives into singular topics, and classroom being covering program design and our continuing education. So series that come out based on. Concepts throughout the year, so that one's more of a subscription service. If you're into it and you want, like, want to understand program design, I have the movement course in there. Uh, all sorts of educational tools you can use.
1: Very cool. I'm a huge advocate. I've obviously been a part of your company from a distance for uh, several years. And so I'm always trying to tell people about training Think Tank. And And I just I just really appreciate everything that you guys put out. I know you're not a big compliment guy, but I'm just going to compliment <laughs> you and your business. You guys do such a great job and just, just keep up the great work, man. And I look forward to coming down and, and visiting you guys soon.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate the compliment and the time. Awesome.
1: Thanks, man.